Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this special history episode of the podcast is Eric Mills, the Editor-in-Chief of Naval History Magazine. Hello, Eric. Hello, Ward. So you just had a very cool thing happen. Uh, I guess it was yesterday, right? You you were in a uh, a junket, I guess we would call it, with none other than Tom Hanks about his forthcoming movie, Greyhound. Tell us about that. Yes, it was a virtually cool, a virtual press conference with Tom Hanks, um, who graces the cover of our current issue, of course, um, as a destroyer captain in World War II and his new movie, Greyhound. And uh, um, I was able to actually ask Tom Hanks a question, um, asked him what some of his favorite World War II movies are, since he's built up quite a nice World War II filmography of his own at this point. And um, it was quite uh, neat to bounce back and forth like that uh, with the star and writer of this new World War II film that's going to be amazing. And there's a lot of interest among it uh, with our readership. So we're very excited about that. So this is going to be our, help me out, August, September issue? It's the July-August issue. July-August issue. Hot off the press. Yeah, so what the audience may not know is you had to kind of make an editorial call uh, sort of in close, as we say, uh, with respect to when this movie was actually going to come out. Um, And it flexed around a little bit. It went from Sony to uh, Apple TV, but you guessed right, which is uh, is a credit to you and your, your sixth sense, your spider sense. Um, so well, it has worked out really good. And then to talk to Tom Hanks is, uh, is very cool. It'd be great if we could get him on the podcast. I would love that. We, I just got one question with him and they cut me off. I'd love to have a whole set of him. He's a Navy. He comes from a Navy background in the Navy town. I think he would be a really great person to talk with us. So speaking of Hollywood and LA, our guest today is in Beverly Hills. It's Bruce Taylor, uh, who is the <laughs> author of the cover story in the current issue of Naval History, a global phenomenon which talks about the history of ironclads, and it's a lot more uh, rigorous than uh, particularly I knew about. Of course, I knew about the CSS Virginia and the Monitor, primarily because the founder of the Naval Institute was the skipper of the Monitor, Emma Warden, uh, for whom the drill field at the Naval Academy is named, and he is our founder. Uh, so that's why his face is on our T-shirts that we give away to uh, to our fans. Um, so... Bruce, how are things going there in Los Angeles? Well, uh, we are sharing the same circumstance and conjuncture as, as everyone else. So, um, uh, But uh, we're coming along and we are developing our naval interests uh, in this lockdown. Yeah, so, we're so, making good use of our time. So how, how is the citizenry out there in, uh, in particularly the Beverly Hills? So I know Rodeo Drive is still kind of shut down, right? And nobody's driving their Rolls Royces around too much? Or how, how's it going in terms of the reopening Beverly Hills effort? Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's certainly much quieter. Um, uh, but there is still, you know, I can hear these uh, high-octane engines <laughs> r- racing up and down the streets. But you know, it's, it's much quieter. I'm going to say it's 50% quieter. Um, it's much quieter today because, of course, we're approaching the holiday um, but, uh, the neighbors next door, I see are moving house. Um, so there is some activity, but on the whole, it's, it's a rather reduced, quietened world. Um, sadly, but anyway, you know, if things are what they are. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so I, I'm going to guess from your accent that you're not a native Californian. 
Um, I'm not a native Californian. Yeah. Uh, I'm uh, I'm actually trinational. I'm an American citizen now, a British citizen. I was born in Chile, so I have that citizenship too. I was educated mainly in Britain, but um, I also grew up in South Africa. I got pulled about by my family. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but I've been living here in, in California since '97. Um, so you know, I'm uh, we're all we're all in the mix together. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, I was educated in Britain uh, for the most part. Um, uh, but you know, I'm 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 here now, right. and I think we'll lay my bones here probably. <laughs> Well, God bless you. For We were chatting before we came on air about my L.A. experience there in the Beachwood Drive area um, two years out there. Got to I, my life was kind of a one and a half mile circle around Beachwood, you know, Hollywood land. Yeah. Um, I'd live in an Airbnb and we'd walk to uh, the restaurants there on Franklin Street. And uh, that was about yep. it. Every once in a while, we'd go downtown for something. Um, it was actually kind of an innocent place. You know, people don't think of it that way, but, uh, you know, Hollywood particularly has an innocence about it that isn't really associated with Hollywood. I don't know if that's your experience here in Beverly Hills. Well, I, I first visited the city in 94. I think it's, it's seen a considerable alteration and gentrification. Um, and, uh, but, uh, no, it, it, it's, it's a city like no other. It is a great city with a lot of variety. Um, but it's it's does take getting used to sometimes. There's a totally different vibe here. Yeah. But uh, no, on the whole, I mean, right now, of course, there's nothing happening. But on on the whole, it's it's a good place to live. Well, let's get to the article. Um, a global phenomenon. As I said at the outset, most folks, when you think of ironclads, you think about the the Battle of of Hampton Roads there and the CSS Virginia. A lot of people talk, you know, the Monitor versus the Merrimack. Technically, the Merrimack was not the correct name of that ship at that time. It was the CSS Virginia. And what your article points out that I did not know, because I think that part of the battle was kind of a draw, but the CSS Virginia had really kicked some ass before that engagement. But the story doesn't start there with ironclads. What is the earliest? And, and when we talk about the term, you also point out that ironclad, it, it, it encompasses a lot of things. So what are the basic elements of a quote-unquote ironclad? And then where did they first appear? When? The ironclad didn't just emerge fully formed out of the ground or the ocean. It was, uh, like so many things, it was a conflation of, of technologies. And when you look at an ironclad, you see three basic or irreducible features. When we're looking back, this is what we now see. You have to have Steam propulsion by screw, not uh, paddle. You have to have an iron, uh, a hull constructed of iron or later steel. And you have to have a main armament firing exploding shells of the type uh, developed um, and refined by the French General Pexin in the 1820s. And the first ships you can say which melded all these things together were three French um, floating batteries, uh, Devastation, Lave, and Tonon. They were all sisters, and they first appeared in the Crimean War, uh, which uh, was fought in the early 1850s. And they appeared in the Black Sea, um, engaging Russian batteries. So these are the first uh, vessels answering the description and seeing action. And they are absolutely the 
the, the progenitors of Monitor and Virginia who uh, appear a few years later during the Civil War. And uh, their first engagement uh, came in uh, 1855 when they reduced the Russian fortress at Kinbun in the Black Sea. So that is the first uh, appearance of these ships, but they're engaging um, a fortress. First ship-to-ship engagement comes at Hamden Roads, with which we're familiar. And as you were saying, the first, uh, this long joust between the Monitor and the Virginia is preceded by uh, Virginia laying waste to three Union vessels of what, at the end of that battle, could be regarded as the traditional type. Um, these were, vessels were rammed and smashed up and put ashore. So although that was totally decisive, um, and everyone could see this was a, a battle with a large audience, um, the engagement that followed the next day between the Virginia and the Monitor was indecisive, but it was uh, tactically indecisive, but it was strategically decisive because the Union blockade um, of of Norfolk um, remained in place. But nonetheless, uh, that was a totally decisive occasion on many grounds. And... uh, so, no wonder the following year the term ironclad was coined, 1862. That's when the some bright spark invented that term. Obviously, day one of Virginia, as Ward was saying, made a real impression. Uh, in fact, I think one of the um, gunnery officers on Virginia had said, a thousand years of battle and breeze came to an end that day. So, how did the introduction of the ironclad change how naval warfare was conceived by nations and strategists and navalists? Clearly, this was the way forward, I would think. There's no going back. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I I think this is revolutionary on so many levels. I mean, I think you need to understand where naval warfare had come from a little bit. In the age of sail, it was much easier for a commander to decline action with another ship or even between fleets. Um, this This is to do with the navigational side of, of, of uh, ships with sails, but also the fact that in a pursuing action, the pursuing ship in the age of sail doesn't really have very many weapons that fire ahead. And um, so you need to have the legs on the enemy, reach the enemy, Dispose yourself to fire your broadside, close the enemy, uh, because the range at which guns were effective was much less than later became the case. So uh, the best example of this, and we've all heard this, comes in 1812. The Constitution is becalmed. There's a pursuing British squadron off New Jersey. We've all heard what Captain Hull did. (laughs) He lowered boats to tow the Constitution out of action. They wet the sails. I don't know the other things that sailors did to get some speed. And they were whistling or sticking pen knives in the mast just to get the extra half knot. Um, and eventually they did it and they got away. But that 
it's not really possible to conceive of that sort of situation in the ironclad age where you could be engaged with guns firing over a much greater arc of fire, firing ahead by a pursuing ship. Um, so that, at the purely tactical level, completely altered the game. Now, if you go up a step, what happens is that suddenly you have this technology, which is the great leveler. Um, although there were limitations to uh, the mo monitor in the Virginia, these aren't ocean-going ships. Um, they're not ships that could really be out of harbor for very long. Uh, later, that technology came, but um, suddenly you, you have a totally new range of technologies in action and um, a whole uh, class of vessels is made much less valuable than it had been. And then this immediately, so what are you to do? So the great leveler, uh, you can produce a few of these ships and make yourself, if not a naval power, then certainly much more potent comparatively than you had been three years earlier. Um, and then there's all the other things of the cascade of this is the, the complete alteration of, of, of um, naval organization. You have two types of people aboard. Uh, you have sailors and, and engineers. The costs of maintenance are much higher. The costs of construction are much higher. Um, and so on and so forth. You have many fewer ships that are effective units now in a Navy than was the case previously. Uh, it's a complete alteration, a complete revolution of naval thinking. Once it was clear the ironclad warship was the emerging technology, Bruce, uh, which nations most enthusiastically embraced the new revolution in their fleets? Well, the, 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 the principal technologies were led by the French and the British. Um, and the, the great ocean-going uh, ironclad. The first one was Gloire, um, which was designed by the French designer Dupuis de Lhomme. Now, this is purely a ship of the line with uh, with with an iron iron plated hull. But then the British immediately that was eighteen fifty nine. I'm speaking under correction. The British immediately uh, answered with Warrior, which was all iron, uh, much larger much more powerfully uh, built and armed. And there was another, she had a sister called Black Prince. So this truly is the revolutionary warship from a um, from an ocean-going standpoint. But um, all nations which had an in, uh, a marine, maritime, naval interest stood up and took notice. Sweden, they had a head start with John Ericsson, a famous figure. He was a a native Swede, so he provided them with support. Uh, the Swedes were concerned about th their own defense against Russia, possibly against Prussia, and so to have this small navy of monitors um, immediately leveled the playing fields uh, with their potential enemies, and then they had this technology to hand provided to them by, by Ericsson. Um, uh, Denmark, similar type of situation, which was facing German aggression um, over the Schleswig-Holstein issue, which arose again in the eight, 1848 and so on and continued. You've got the Netherlands also, uh, which is anxious to protect itself, defend itself against the Prussians, but also now sees a way of, of, of defending its great territory in the Dutch East Indies. 
Um, then now at a totally different type of level, you have Spain, which is interested in recovering some of its American, former American colonies and builds one of the great um, warships of the age, Numancia, built in France. And they then send that to, uh, in the early 1860s, then they send it in, I think, 1865, speaking under correction, uh, to the Pacific coast and try to engage these, uh, the, the, these Latin American republics. And it's not a success, but it's, it's a good reason for acquiring a, a, an ironclad, which in the process is the first to circle the world. And then the, the Chileans and the Peruvians um, engage in the War of the Pacific in the 1860s, 1870s. Territorial war over possession of the nitrate fields and other territorial interests. And then later on, now later, so getting slightly beyond your question, you have um, the Chinese who are beginning to get a bit sick of this Western aggression um, and the um, the aggression of the Japanese who capture the Ryukyu Islands in the 1880s. And they start developing... Uh, building a fleet using this new technology with a great deal of, of outside assistance. So to answer the question, the, the leaders in the technology are the British and the French initially, although, of course, we, the Americans, also start making contributions based on practical experience as well as know-how. Um, but it's suddenly everyone realizes that you can actually have a very serviceable naval presence with these vessels. It is a, a totally different arrangement, but there you are. A global phenomenon, as you correctly described it. So you've got China um, embracing the emerging naval technology. Um, the Ryukyu Islands are uh, in dispute. Uh, it sounds like you're talking about today a little bit. History doesn't repeat itself, but human nature doesn't change. And many of the tactical, strategic considerations uh, remain with us always. And um, so, yeah, there is, uh, that there's no doubt that uh, the Chinese Navy, of course, is, is building and has been building for a long time a, a ocean-going blue water Navy to assert its economic power and give it a naval dimension, which is something that Navies have always done. They might they might have done it in the opposite direction, um, but states have always done this. And they've actually recently rebuilt, re, uh, produced a life scale full scale replica of one of their early uh, ironclads battleships, which I think uh, they completed her about ten years ago. You can go visit somewhere in China. So yes, they are now looking back and re-reviewing re and recultivating their naval history. Uh, and of course, current and future developments do put a different gloss on the past. You know, you can find origins and things which have hitherto unheralded, un un unnoticed. It's a fascinating period. So you you pointed out earlier that ironclads like Monitor were not open water ships. Uh, you know, very low freeboard, if any freeboard. And so the design of ironclads to do the stuff that influenced the Chinese on, you know, whether it's the Dutch or the UK or whomever, the, sh the, the design had to evolve. So how were some of the ways besides just getting bigger uh, that they evolved and, and became, uh, you know, ocean going ironclads? An increase in size, um, an increase in, and freeboard, 
um, that made these ships um, better able from a purely navigational standpoint to deal with the sort of weather you get at sea. But also, um, as anyone who's served afloat knows, habitability is a very important element of the effectiveness of any vessel. You, at the lowest end, you have the Hunley, yeah, uh, the submarine, and then right up to the aircraft carriers of today. So you need to be able to accommodate people, uh, provision them, provision the ship with the things it needs to operate as a naval unit. That means fuel, uh, armaments, and so on, and all the other appurtenances. This means an increase in size, an increase in building techniques, an increase in organization, an increase in money, availability of funds. And uh, gradually, I mean, already with Warrior at the very beginning of this process, you have a very large vessel. Warrior is 9,000 tons um, displacement. It's already a pretty big vessel. Um, but essentially, they had to, in order to make these ships ocean-going, they uh, had to increase the size. Later on, in the 1870s, um, under the influence of uh, British designer, um, I'm going to say William White, but I think I'm wrong there. It's not coming to me. They got rid of masts and sails altogether. So you have to have a degree of confidence in the engine technology in order to say, okay, guys, we're going to lose the, um, the braces now. We're just going to rely on the belt for these pants. So... Um, uh, again, developments in every in every field, and of course you also have to persuade the people at the top. There needs to be some rotation of the people in charge to accept a type of navy in which um, these things in which they'd all been trained, sails, and many sailors and seamen continue to be trained in the age of sail, which you know, shipping, civilian shipping was still quite a lot of it was still under sail in the 20th century. Um, a world in which you can get rid of these things and um, then also develop the tactics um, and the numbers and the organization that makes this a viable form of prosecuting naval warfare. Um, so that takes time. That's a very multifarious answer, but I think it may give a sense of the, the variety and the complexity of these things. All this had to be sorted out. And they didn't have that much battle experience. Um, they had some battle experience, but uh, in the age of sail, you had uh, masses of battle experience. So Nelson uh, drifts there into battle at Trafalgar. He's standing at the apex of 400 years of technology and tactical acumen. Uh, it's very different. Once you have this new technology, um, how do you actually do battle? You tend to do it very much in the old way close in with rams like at Lissa, <laughs> um, whereas your guns would allow you to stand off and engage at a much greater difference. But it's very hard to get to get through all of these mental barriers. You do tend to rely on the past. It's it, like any other situation. Yeah, and, and when you say that, I'm just thinking of, it also takes a national will. And, and so in the wake of the Civil War, and we, we say this a lot about the birth of the Naval Institute and why Warden created this forum is because he was frustrated that the national will was lagging this ascendant threat in the form of the Spanish who had the ability to fight uh, in this new way. So we, we talk about, I think early on in the conversation, we were talking about there was no going back 
in the in the case of the United States Navy, it was arguable after the Civil War which direction we were going to go based on funding. So that's what was very frustrating to Admiral Warden was this this fact that in the face of the threat of the Spanish and other world naval powers, that we were we were lagging technology wise. It, it wasn't a done deal for the U.S. Navy. Um, and it was only the existential threat of the Spanish Navy in the Caribbean and places like that that allowed him and we talk about the 15 original founders of the Naval Institute, all great naval strategists, great thinkers, people whose names are on the buildings at the Naval Academy and the War College and places like that. And I entreat the audience to check out a Naval Institute press book by Trent Hone called Learning War, which talks about this renaissance, if you will, of the American Navy and the insurgents. Because again, we just, as obnoxious Americans, we just assumed we were the best at everything. And in fact, we, we weren't. You know, you mentioned the Netherlands, right? And, and so I, I actually lived in Holland when I was young and I just visited there for the first time in 47 years last fall, went back to The Hague in Amsterdam. Um, and you forget what a naval power the Netherlands was in the late 1800s, right? Um, a, a, a superior superior to um, to the, the United States. This technology, and this segues into the post-ironclads, because like the dinosaurs, there was an end to this, this period. Was it technology? Was it strategy? Was it the threat? Um, what gave it its day in the sun? And then what was the end of it? The end of the ironclad age comes with dreadnoughts, um, which is a, a, a refinement of all of these um, technologies in one hull. You know, again, it's three. It's, it's a factor of three. What do ironclads have? They have the, the hull. They have the, uh, uh, the, the steam power. Uh, and they have uh, the guns. What does Dreadnought have? She has uh, turbine engines. She has all big guns, but the best available, all big guns, with a, except of a few. And, um, you know, Admiral Fisher's the progenitor of Dreadnought, his genius is he gets the thing from nothing to afloat in 366 days. So you get, you know, take that. Again, a revolutionary ship that says, just like um, Warrior earlier, everything else is, uh, is, um, is obsolete now, really. Not in the fullest sense, but basically, plainly, we have a major improvement here. And if you want to breathe the same air as us, you're going to have to do something likewise. So again, it's technology, but there is the moment. What is the moment? It's the great naval race between Britain and Germany. And then, you know, already by the end of the 19th century, we have Alfred Thayer Mahan, whose writings have now reached the upper reaches of politics. And uh, he's an apostle of navalism. And you think, well, you can't really be taken seriously as a first-class power um, today unless you have one of these really newfangled navies that cost the earth. And they really do cost a lot of money. It requires a significant allocation of, of, of the budget. And again, smaller states can say, well, you know, take Chile, 1909. What we can do is we can, you know, we have these close contacts with the British we can uh, speak to them and we can have the greatest battleship in the world uh, designed and built for us. Uh, we can have, uh, you 
know, allocate a quarter of the national budget and to get these ships in three or four years' time. And that's what they did, except that they didn't get them until after the First World War. But again, it's entirely the same. You can, the, the Brazilians um, managed to do it. You can order these ships, and suddenly you are a major regional power. On the, on the back, or it's perceived, whatever the reality, the perception is more important. You can have these ships available to you, and you can say to the Argentines or the Chileans, well, you know, answer that. And so it's a confluence of technologies, of demand, necessity, of political will, the things we've discussed, availability of finance, a certain degree of political stability uh, domestically, and so on and so forth. But it's the same sort of things, but now the technology is much more advanced and the circumstances are slightly different. What I'm wondering is, are there any technological revolutions in our time or in the near future that you see as being parallel to the changes wrought by the age of the ironclad? Well, well, there are many, um, and I'm, you know, my 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 expertise, such as it is, ends in about 1945. But um, obviously, in a military context, we can see that drone warfare, um, uh, something as an it's an offshoot of aviation technology, but also there's the digital revolution that's contributed to that. We not using drones, but in, in 1999, we saw how NATO aviation drove the Serbs out of Kosovo um, with very little loss to itself uh, in either personnel or material. There was some, very little by comparison with earlier, earlier wars. The aims were limited. The execution was not flawless, but the results were clear enough. And now 20 years on, we have drones, which has become the, the weapon of choice for dealing with it at least at that in that dimension, dealing with the war on 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 terror, and uh, these, to the extent of my knowledge, can be operated from at enormous distances from the battlefield um, in air-conditioned comfort. So that's obviously a huge development. I'm not qualified to say how decisive these weapons are or will prove to be in every dimension of their deployment, but I you know I do know that we're at a very long way from the Rams of Lissa. <laughs> and uh, and and even from um, you know Hampton Roads, that's uh, that's one obvious thing to me. Who, who by no means approaching expertise in this. And I think uh, from a purely civilian standpoint, the world of driverless vehicles is something that will alter our lives, uh, will probably save lives, but also have a profound effect on society. Not only in the realm of transport, but also in the realms of employment, manufacturing, insurance, for instance, and in many other sectors, no doubt. Um, but nonetheless, the ingredients uh, remain very similar to what sparked off the ironclad revolution of an earlier era. It's a mixture of demand, finance, technical capabilities, political decision-making, predictive anticipation, and, you know, human will, the, 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 the person who is most thrusting and most persuasive in the ability to deploy their argument sometimes gets to gets their way. All of these things, which are facets of human society that involve us and that are involved in these phenomena, which ironclad is one. So what are you working on now, Bruce? These days, I'm actually completing a biography of my mentor at Oxford. Uh, who, who died um, about 15 years ago. He was uh, 
professor of Spanish at Oxford, but he was in MI5 during the Second World War. And uh, May, from a naval uh, perspective, may have been responsible in part for the sinking of the, uh, of, of the Japanese cruiser Haguro because uh, he operated a, a double-cross system with a, a, a Japanese, an Indian nationalist agent of the Japanese whom the British picked up in Ceylon, today Sri Lanka, and turned him to, to uh, transmit uh, incorrect data to the Japanese. The concern was to get uh, these two Japanese cruisers that survived in Singapore towards the end of the Second World War, get them out of Singapore and maybe sink them. And it seems that they may have uh, drawn Haguro out using that intelligence. But he was a great scholar, and I, I happened to know him quite well in, in the 1990s when I was in Oxford. So I thought I'd write a a biography of him, which does have this naval element. But this, what with COVID, and this book is nearly done. I've, I've been writing about a chapter every two weeks. It would be about a chapter every six months earlier. Forced, um, forced and prolific the next project sense. after that, I think I may do a book on HMS Lion. I've already done one on Hood, the battlecruiser. So I'm thinking of doing one, a similar book on, on the battlecruiser Lion, um, but we'll see, you know, it, it's, uh, these are strange times and um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Well, we, we look forward to hearing more about those. Hopefully there, uh, maybe Naval History could be used for a first serial release, a thousand words or so for either of those, uh, those titles. So please keep Absolutely. in touch with us. The article is a global phenomenon. The article, the author is Bruce Taylor. It's in the June issue of Naval History Magazine. Bruce, thanks for talking to us today on the Proceedings Podcast. I'm uh, delighted, honored, and I've had a great time, and uh, thank you very much for organizing this. Okay, that'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We will see you next episode. <laughs>